Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you so enjoyed I just wanted the talk. to talk um, about a, a project that um, myself and Hilary Marland from the University of Warwick is, are, we're working on at the moment. Um, Hilary couldn't make it to the event today. Um, and we'll actually decide we're trying to try divvy up our trips because it's becoming a bit exhausting. It's becoming a roadshow at this stage. So um, this is a, a wonderful chance for me to come to Edinburgh and talk about this project, which has been funded by the Wellcome Trust, um, and we're at the final stages of it. Um, <coughs> so in August 1874, Martin Sweeney was admitted to, Ra- to Liverpool. So bring that back to Liverpool's Rainhill Asylum, suffering from mania of one month's duration, caused by intemperance. Aged 40, Sweeney had been born in Ireland and came to Liverpool in May from Manchester, where he'd been living for a couple of weeks. Previously, it's described he'd been on the tramp. Though in good physical condition, he was, quote, under the impression that people are engaging in a conspiracy against him that whenever he got work, they followed him, and he had to leave one town after another, is very restless and has a vacant and suspicious um, expression. Sweeney claimed he has been a soldier and left the army in 1856, has been in jail for for several occasions for desertion. His mental state has been of some years duration. He remained in Rainhill Asylum for 10 years, showing no change or improvement before being removed to another Lancashire asylum, Whittingham Asylum, near Preston, in December 1884. Now, this paper explores the migration of Irish patients into and through the Lancashire asylum system in the second half of the 19th century. Exploring such stories stories as Martin Sweeney, it focuses on the many Irish migrants who ended up in asylums after prolonged periods of wandering, that's the phrase repeatedly used, wandering across Lancashire, across England, and indeed across the globe. Irish migrants appear to be particularly susceptible to mental breakdown, or at least to being diagnosed with mental disorder and were admitted in extremely high numbers to the county's public asylums. At the height of the Irish famine, as I'm sure many of you know, Migration through the port of Liverpool took place on a vast scale. In 1850, around a quarter of a million Irish arrived in Liverpool, and the 1851 census listed 22% of the city's inhabitants as of Irish origin. By this time, and out of all proportion to their numbers, Irish admissions were were, (coughs) were accounting for approximately a half of the intake of patients to Rainhill Asylum. Similarly, in Manchester, by 1871, the Irish made up just under 10% of the general population, but were 25% of the inmates of the city's Prestwich Asylum. And on arrival um, in England, many Irish were diagnosed with mental illness and shunted quite rapidly into the local workhouse lunatic wards and then on into the asylums. And the very desperation of the other Irish migrants 
forced out of Ireland in search of work and relief for their poverty, and the dire um, st steamship journeys that they experienced when crossing the Irish Sea cause contemporary observers to refer to them as hopeless and foolhardy. While Irish migration to America was described as a desperate cure for those ills of low wages and misery. <clears throat> At the same time, Irish voyagers experienced wonder and hope as they set out in search of a better life and escape from the conditions that led to their journey. For large no numbers, the story of Irish migration would come, however, to be dominated by institutionalisation after the mid-19th century. As sea voyages and travel within Britain <clears throat> in search of work were followed by committal into what were to become um, institutions of confinement for the insane paid out of local rates. And this is just, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this um, map, but this just gives you the, uh, an idea of the settlement patterns of Irish, the Irish in Britain in the 19th century. And in particular, um, we see the shift basically from the Liverpool area moving up actually nearer towards Scotland. At times, some of these travellers were forcibly repatriated to Ireland from Liverpool, or even in some cases back from America to Liverpool as their point of departure. The Irish also found themselves in limited spaces at the borders of life, moving between places, tramping from town to town, from workhouse to asylum, from prison to asylum, and between asylums. And David Fitzpatrick, of course, has demonstrated that for both Irish men and women, immigration had become an expected episode in the life cycle, akin to marriage or inheritance. Even in 1876, long after the post-famine flight um, had slackened, the probability of, emigra of emigration was almost one half. And of course, Fitzpatrick also famously described Irish migrants as a peculiarly trampling people, highlighting the numbers um, of who, the numbers in Britain who roamed around the industrial centres hoping for casual employment, unsettled, transient and centrifugal in their drift. Similarly, scholars studying asylum admissions in Australasia have linked the high rates of confinement among Irish migrants to the anatomised nature of settlements in the New World and the movement in search of employment. So in this paper, basically, we examine how the experience of the Irish as a trampling people dovetailed with their representation by asylum doctors and the reality, indeed, of asylum admissions. In Lancashire and in Britain more generally, the Irish were associated with a propensity, alongside their trampling activities, to access welfare institutions. A large proportion of the Irish pensions entering Lancashire's asylum were brought in as vagrants, found wandering, admitted via local workhouses, without an address and without family. And the emotional disorientation which psychiatrists and academics have linked to the experience of migrants today and the consequent distress um, of Irish migrants was, it seems, recognised in mid-19th century Lancashire. Indeed, asylum superintendents made efforts to comprehend it and to explain high rates of Irish admissions to their institutions. Whilst the burden and enormous cost, and it was enormous, um, of delivering welfare provision and asylum care to large numbers was a frustration um, and also a burden on ratepayers and poor law and asylum administrators alike, their plight, desperation 
emotional vulnerability was acknowledged. To migrate was described as stressful and a route to frequent disappointment rather than fulfilment of expectations and hopes. Some evidence of this then will be provided in, in later sections uh, as the big picture of the impact of the Irish on asylums and their management is I'll sort of link it to individual stories of migration, the search for work, destitution, isolation and confinement. I just want to make a comment then about sources. So obviously we've, for this project we've drawn on traditional uh, sources as it were um, for anyone who's done history of psychiatry of history of institutions. So asylum reports, admission registers, um, admission papers, case books, etc., official uh, publications and of course the press. But also we found what we think is a relatively unique um, source um, of information. And this was a set of notebooks produced after 1866 by the General Finance Committee of the Lancashire County Council. Having passed a resolution to place lunatics into two classes to establish their settlement for the purposes of chargeability, and class one were lunatics comprised of Irish, Scottish, Manx and foreigners, the results of inquiries into the birth, into the place of birth and arrival in Lancashire that we gained from these notebooks, and here's an example of one, um, gives basically some small insight into the life and experience of the migrants prior to admission into the asylums. So here's just one example. It's, as you can see, quite a small um, entry. Um, but it, the example in this case is Kate O'Neill, um, who entered the asylum in 1869. Um, she's suffering from mania, but as you can see, they, they investigated her situation somewhat and established that she came over from Ireland to England in 1867. She'd worked as a domestic service with a Mrs. Ludlow in Thoxton Park, and prior to that, she'd worked in Southport. And then eventually, she was removed from Rainhill into um, Whittingham. And what we've managed to do is actually link these case notes with the asylum records to try and flesh out a, a fuller story of the individuals themselves, because obviously for financial reasons they're keen to find out these stories. So it's quite an unusual source to have and quite exciting. Um, so just to a few more um, details on the sort of reception of general reception and the context into which um, some of the migrants arrived. Um, as I said, of course, in the famine period, migration into Lancashire escalated quite significantly, but also it remained high in the post-famine period. And while there was a great deal of diversity in migration um, patterns during the second half of the 19th century, I have to move away somewhat from the image of the famine migrants only. We are chiefly interested, though, in the impoverished Irish who entered into the large public asylums of Lancashire many of whom were, of course, Catholic and from the rural midlands of the country. The majority, as I suggested, arrived in Liverpool undernourished, even starving, uh, and that's well after the famine. Their weak state of health was again further undermined um, by the miserable and hazardous conditions on board the steamships that brought them uh, to Liverpool. So eyewitnesses, for instance, to the 1854 Select Committee report on emigrant ships described what is essentially uh, an example of human tra trafficking occurring on a daily basis between the ports of Liverpool and um, Ireland, basically, and shipping people over and back. 
And there is just an example of the type of discussion you come across of the conditions in which they travelled. So they're generally crowded around the funnel of the steamer, huddled together in a most disgraceful manner. And it goes on to describe the very harsh um, conditions on board the steamships. And of course, the inhabitants of Liverpool, driven by a mix of humanitarian concern, but also financial anxiety, were horrified at the dumping of huge numbers of impoverished, sick and diseased migrants on the dockside. And they became steeled against the Irish vagrant. And it's important to note here that in comparison to Irish migration, um, to, sorry, that in comparison to Irish migration to Australasia or America, the movement between England and Ireland was largely unmanaged, unchecked by immigration controls or indeed medical examinations, and as I said, was facilitated by cheap travel. So basically, many migrants moved over and back the Irish Sea with relative ease, even after forced repatriation and in and out welfare institutions in Britain and Ireland. Some hoped that they may return to um, Ireland uh, finally with employment, but this uh, seldom happened. As the conditions that basically forced them out never changed, or di didn't change until after the period. So the reception, as I said, they received um, sometimes could be quite harsh. Um, but also Irish migrants were recognised as a, social so a crucial source of labour, vital to the local economy at times of peak employment. Um, however, there is no doubt that their large numbers, the sheer numbers, prompted a series of, of um, prejudices and anxieties for civil, religious and welfare, as well as medical authorities, particularly as they begin, began to settle in, in certain areas of, say, Manchester and Liverpool. And these are the type of, of issues that you see emerging around um, particular disease outbreaks. There's a focus on Irish areas in, say, the city of Liverpool. Um, so, for instance, during the 1849 cholera outbreak in Liverpool, um, the chief medical officer, Duncan, uh, very much linked it to the Irish residents in that area. Likewise, in the 1860s, 1865 and 1866, there's a three-pronged epidemic of cattle plague, typhus and cholera. Um, when it erupted, again, you see it being linked to the, Irish, the areas of Irish um, residents. So with the cholera epidemic, initially it actually appeared on the German ships, but then it quickly becomes associated with a wake um, that took place in the home of an Irish woman, a Mrs. Bisham, um, in the period, or sorry, on Bisham Street um, uh, during the, the outbreak. So there's all these anxieties, broader anxieties, in Liverpool at this time as the Irish move in. And of course there's also the political context that, that emerges as well in 1867 with the Fenian uh, outbreak. Now it could be argued that the concepts of contagion and epidemic also encapsulate, um, encompassed uh, mental disease, given the high rates of admission of the Irish into Lancashire's asylum. Um, this connection is not necessarily unreasonable. Certainly the long language was at times highly emotive um, as the stress on Rain Hill's accommodation was attributed in a similar way to epidemic disease to particular conditions of large manufacturing and commercial centres, the press of people, overcrowding, poverty, low living and <clears throat> a range of temptations that the city life presented. 
even at times of prosperity, insanity, in the view of Dr. Clayton at Rain Hill Asylum, increased largely as a result of intemperance. Yes, most commonly, the asylum superintendents argued that industrial crises and trade depressions, with their attendant trials and privations, are particularly productive of mental alienation. And the large number of Irish migrants admitted to the four Lancashire asylums at Lancaster, Rainhill, Prestwich and Whittingham testified to their vulnerability as the, the migrants attempted to find work and to settle, particularly as many were moving from a rural economy to a larger turbulent port city. And this just gives you an, an insight, and this is just Rainhill, which had the best records, essentially, uh, of the impact of the Irish as they moved in. And as you can see, the impact is quite staggering and indeed enduring. At Rainhill, Irish patients accounted for about half of the admissions in the late 1850s and nearly half of the resident population in 1871. And also this sort of bled into other institutions in the area. <coughs> Haydock Lodge, which was a private asylum near Liverpool, um, admitted certain pauper patients or was used and also, of course, the lunacy wards of the local um, workhouses. And just for in case you're wondering what the peak is um, in the admissions, that is when the uh, Whittingham Asylum, 1873-74, is opened. And so they clear out patients from Rainhill into Whittingham, and then they bring in another, they admit another uh, slot of, of, of patients. And as you can see, the, the Irish are sort of keeping in step with the the other um, patients in the asylum. So the Irish also made a significant contribution to the globalisation of the asylum population of Lancashire during the second half of the century. If we look, I mean, this is the figures for 1857, where you can see in addition to English and Irish patients, you also have some Welsh, some Scots, but also Prussian, French and Dutch. If we carry on to 1884, um, the Irish are still, account, are still account for over 31% of patients in, in Rainhill Asylum and also 20% of those confined in Prestwich. But there are, of course, as you can see, many other nations and ethnicities represented, collectively making up 38% um, of the patients respectively at Rainhill Asylum. And of course, Rainhill or, sorry, the Lancashire Asylums were not unique in this respect. Carl Reeves and Len Smith have tracked the impact of Jewish admissions, notably from Eastern Europe on Conley Hatch Asylum in London. And there the number was so large that the asylum evolved largely into a Jewish institution, enabling for the preparation of kosher food and adapt adaptations for religious services. There were, however, relatively few uh, Jewish patients in um, Lancashire. Um, for, Lancashire, for the Lancashire medical superintendents, the Irish basically remained emblematic of a phenomenon of displacement and confinement. The large number of admissions to Prestwich in 1884, where its um, medical superintendent concluded, due in a great measure to the fact that in Lancashire there is a constant immigration going on from Ireland. So they're, they're linking the Irish pressure to the overall pressure uh, on the asylums of this period. And this Experience, the experience in Lancashire is actually replicated in other uh, nations. 
In the words of the historian David Wright, the Irish had the dubious distinction of having the highest reported rate of institutional incarceration at home while simultaneously constituting the most conspicuous inmate populations in settler uh, societies. So if you look for across the globe from New York to Toronto uh, to Victoria, Irish admissions into psychiatric institutions soared in the second half of the 19th century. The relationship of um, migration to mental breakdown, as we know, continues to attract debate and a wide variety of interpretations. Transcultural psychiatrists have argued that the mentally vulnerable were likely to emigrate, while other research concludes that the process of migration itself produces high rates of mental illness. They have also differed on whether the stresses emigrants underwent immediately after migration pose a greater threat to mental health than the disappointments and strain post-migration um, over, post over the longer period. Now, unfortunately, our sources don't allow us to explore these questions in a systematic manner, but the um, asylum records, and in particular the Lancashire Case um, Council notebooks, suggest that our sample includes both categories, i.e. those that have moved into the asylum quite quickly on arrival, and those that have been living in the area for quite some time. As the close relationship between migration and confinement in English asylums became increasingly evident, admission to Irish asylums also soared by 400% between 1851 and 1905, causing the Irish inspectors of lunacy to suggest that those who emigrated were the most able and resourceful among the Irish population, and that those who were left behind were the sick, the incompetent, the old and the mad. But such a viewpoint did not tally with the opinions of 19th century host communities and asylum superintendents. In many cases, the Irish seemed to step directly off the boat into the asylum. Um, sorry, that's, that's how big the, um, some of the asylums actually became. That's just one example. That's Whittingham Asylum. Um, which was opened, as I said, in 1874. Um, so just to look at one example of Anne Thornley, who travelled to Liverpool from Ireland in July 1868 with the purpose of migrating to America, but instead was taken to Rainhill Asylum on arrival in the city. And similarly, Anne McDuggan was taken from the SS Helvetia in November 1874, as it docked in Liverpool, first to the workhouse, and thence to Rain Hill. Or to Rain Hill. And she was noted in the, the case book to be suffering from mania of unknown duration, was violent, thin, and poorly nourished. Not surprisingly, Lancashire Medical Superintendent referred specifically in their reports to the pressure placed by the Irish on what were rapidly to become severely overcrowded institutions and, and the proneness of Irish to institutionalisation. Um, and of course the Irish were also admitted in disproportionately high numbers to the county's workhouses. Many then found their way into the lunacy wards and from there were transferred to the local asylums. In 1863, a year when Irish patients accounted for two-thirds of the institution's inmates, um, the medical superintendent of Lancaster Asylum remarked that Ireland had excellent lunatic asylums 
of its own and urge legislation to remove so heavy a burden on Lancashire County be introduced. And even as overall proportions declined, asylum, medical, asylum superintendents continue to highlight Irish admissions and to use Irish patients as exemplars of the wider problems of overpopulated asylums and the challenges of relieving and discharging patients. So in 1874, Prestwick's medical superintendent alluded to the continued draw of Lancashire, of its high wages, for the never-failing stream of Irish, many of whom failing in the race of life, break down and find their way into the asylum. So this phrase is used repeatedly over and over again, this notion of failing in the race of life. More than 25% of Prestwich inmates were Irish, and half of these had no settlement in the city. And it was observed that some of them were on their way to America. Then they were overtaken by sickness. Others came here seeking employment. Only a small percentage of friends resident in England, and very few have ever contributed one farthing to the rates which they encumber. Um, now, as David Fitzpatrick has concluded, for hordes of Irish deck passengers disembarking at Liverpool, Bristol, or indeed the Clyde, Britain was seldom the desired or promised land. Migrants to Liverpool tended to dra travel on to America, or indeed Australasia, and indeed many did. Significant numbers had their passage onwards prepaid and transferred directly to vessels heading to America. The Earl of Dunlop Moore remarked in 1854 that the whole aspirations of the people are turned towards America and that they come to England as a temporary expedient. Um, and the number of Irish using Liverpool as a sort of stepping stone seemed to remain quite significant even after the establishment of direct journeys from Ireland to America in 1859 as the Cunard routes opened from Cove in County Cork and later in Derry. However, these individuals failed, often failed, or some failed to um, make this onward journey, held back by a lack of resources or sickness. And again, significant number of these failures, and again that word is used, made their way into asylums, their condition exasperated um, in many cases by hunger, sickness, and physical weakness. And in the asylum, they met with anxiety, as they contributed to the overcrowding of the institution and the costs of confinement. However, at the same time, the associations of insanity with stress, poverty, dislocation and disappointment was articulated in annual reports and in case notes. The doctors treating Irish patients in large numbers saw the process of migration as destabilising and a potential cause of mental uh, collapse. So while also citing the proneness of the Irish more broadly um, to mental weakness and hereditary factors, asylum medical superintendents developed a sort of form of stress hypothesis, <laughs> emphasising the impact of failure and indeed disappointment on people already exhausted, <coughs> impoverished and in a poor state of physical health. Um, Cleeton uh, commented um, on the number of Irish Catholic admissions to uh, Rain Hill in 1884, saying, in three instances, insanity seems to be produced by the excitement and embarrassment um, incidental to contemplating immigration to America, and in each of these cases, the patients were Irish peasants. So the idea that they had 
And this great sense of anticipation, and then because it wasn't realised, they got stuck in Liverpool, that this um, you know, was um, implicated in their illness. And his successor carried on this team, theme. Dr Rogers observed in 1856 that it was through Liverpool which many of these poor people who have been crushed by disappointment in a foreign land seek to return to their native homes. That the idea that they're returning back to Liverpool to make their way um, back into Ireland. And one such patient was Joanna Hennessy, who was a 30-year-old um, woman sorry, a 36-year-old Irish woman and probably a servant who was reported to be suffering from dementia. Joanna had emigrated from Ireland to America expecting to find some friends who had previously gone out, but in this she failed. On her return to England in July 1855, she was admitted first of all to Haydock Lodge and then transferred to Rain Hill in the following year. She remained there until her death in March 1870. And she wasn't alone. As Rogers commented, the return of patients like Joanna was not uncommon. Many cases occur annually of Irish patients who become insane in America or on their passage home, being placed on shore in Liverpool by the captain of the vessel to be taken charge of by the police, transferred to the workhouses and subsequently sent to the asylums. Um, Yet the vast majority of Irish patients treated in Lancashire's asylum had travelled directly from Ireland to England, continuing a, decade -long, a decades long tradition of travelling there for work. And of course, asylum medical superintendents may have been influenced by, and even wittingly or unwittingly, reinforced stereotypes of the Irish as violent and intemperate, drawn to low living. <coughs> liable to particular forms of mental illness, particularly mania, general paralysis of the insane, and insanity associated with intemperance. Far higher proportions of Irish patients had their mental collapse ascribed to drink compared to non-Irish patients in the sample of our, uh, we took from Rainhill. And many Irish patients were diagnosed as suffering from mania, which was related to sort of bellicose and, and quite violent behaviour prior to admission and during uh, asylum confinement. In 1867, Rogers at Rainhill admitted or blamed the bad condition of many of the Irish patients in the asylum as regarded their destructiveness, violence, etc., owing to their being drawn from the Irish quarters of Liverpool. And interesting, because Rogers is actually quite sympathetic towards the patients, and even he sort of uh, comments on this low living of the Irish. Um, and Mary Kelly was one such uh, example. She's a 30-year-old servant who was admitted to Rain Hill in 1867, um, who had varied her time laterally by alternatively visiting prisons and asylums, of which she makes a boast. She had been a patient a year previously, but had escaped, and it was incoherent and noisy, especially at night when she disturbed the other patients. So the Irish were deemed particularly susceptible as well to general paralysis of the insane as a result of sexual or alcoholic intemperance. As well as being a reflection of indeed prejudice or possibly presumption about the behaviour of the Irish, their vulnerability to general paralysis was attributed by asylum doctors to the stress of moving from rural to urban environments with their many temptations and the faster pace of life. Liverpool, as a commercial 
uh, bustling centre and indeed a port presented a particular risk. So Liverpool itself becomes part of the problem uh, for the doctors. Indications of prejudice can be found in physical descriptions of Irish patients and comments on their deportment. Of those admitted to Rain Hill in 1853, John Birmingham was described as a very stupid-looking, raw Irish youth with very little mind and full of mischief, while Thomas Curran, according to his sister, had lost his place as a clerk in the merchant's office through drinking. So there's this focus on drinking quite a lot. Mary O'Toole, a 35-year-old labourer diagnosed with mania, was described in March 1871 as having a true Irish face. However, asylum superintendents also commented more positively on their Irish patients, attributing their mental breakdown to the impact of living in a new environment and the day to day struggle to find work and support themselves and their family following their move to Lancashire. So it's not all negative uh, reporting. For, for example, Michael Malloy, um, who was a married Irish labourer, was admitted to Rain Hill in 1853 at the age of 29. He was referred to the, in the case notes as tall, stout and well-made. He'd been in Rain Hill one year previously, um, was exhausted on admission, but, quote, he rallied and was afterwards known as a very hard-working man and very clever at laying down the drains. Since his di discharge, he had worked in various towns in Lancashire, Wigham, Bolton and Manchester. But when he had returned home, his wife became alarmed at his strange behaviour. Um, during his second stay in Rain Hill, his symptoms of general paralysis became increasingly evident and he died in the asylum in 1858. So basically, he had um, picked up general paralysis. The high numbers of Irish patients caused additional pressures on institutions. While other migrants must have presented challenges for asylum managers in terms of language and cultural practices, as we've seen, there was quite a, a mix of, uh, of languages present, these issues were referred to sparingly in comparison with concerns about the Irish. Some spoke, Irish, some spoke Gaelic rather than English. One such patient was Bridget Nicholson. Um, a 52-year-old married housewife who was admitted to Rain Hill in January 1871. She was described as suicidal, dangerous and suffering from dementia. It was observed that she was constantly talking incoherently in her native tongue and that the only word that could be made out was a kushla, or my, my love or my darling. The case notes are not clear on whether these patients spoke English and had lapsed into Gaelic or Irish as a result of mental illness or indeed spoke little English at all. That the Irish were other was also demonstrated through their religion, and the terms Irish and Catholic were more or less synonymous. As uh, Roger Swift has argued, in the minds of the English, um, this, sort of this um, interchangeability took place uh, throughout England. Around 86% of female Irish admissions and 90% of male admissions were described as Roman Catholics in our sample. Um, and the case notes from Rain Hill suggest that patients found some comfort in engaging in familiar religious practices. Uh, so, for instance, in January 1851, the medical superintendent at Rain Hill reported that Fanny McCormack, a 25-year-old Roman Catholic servant admitted with epilepsy, took much pleasure in conversations with the chaplain. However, such opportunities were limited. 
in the Lancashire institutions which struggle to find the resources or perhaps the commitment to provide Roman Catholic chapels and chaplains. The Lunacy Commissioners criticised asylum officials for failing to, do, to, to see to the needs of Roman Catholic patients, commenting in 1888 that Lancaster was the only one of the Lancashire asylums without such regular service. At Press Rich, they observed that the large number of Roman Catholic patients attended Mass in the Old Hall in 1889 gave an idea of how many Irish they were, so they use that phrase interchangeably. <coughs> and concern about providing for the large number of Roman Catholics was expressed in 1869 by J.B. Booth, who was chairman of the Lancashire uh, Magistrates, who noted that no chaplains were currently being paid for the service intending to 821 Catholic patients in the Lancashire asylums, and indeed suggested that Whittingham Asylum which was built to, to uh, accommodate 1,000 patients, could actually, operate it, could actually operate efficiently as a dedicated Roman Catholic asylum, which would therefore allow for a chaplain to be remunerated. So the idea was that Whittingham would actually be turned into a Roman Catholic uh, institution. Now, Booth's proposal was not enacted, and of course, when he made his comments, there was considerable unease about the cost of the asylums to the rate papers, particularly in the, public, um, in the press. So the, ed the editors of the Preston Guardian, when discussing the great financial penalty for pauper insanity, as they described it, identified the main causes as the imported mad into Lancashire, um, as long with drunkenness, crime, poverty, and wretchedness, so more general causes. Um, so there was, there was no great appetite to carry out this initiative and it was, it was let slide away, basically. Now, asylum managers, managers related, as I suggested, the susceptibility of Irish migrants to institutionalisation to their social isolation, which was, of course, exasperated by vagrant lifestyles and tramping across England and further afield in search of employment. Within a few years of the opening of the Rain Hill, of Rain Hill Asylum, the Committee of Vis Visitors commented on how the port of Liverpool supplied a considerable number of vagrant lunatics with no claim on the county in terms of either settlement or residence. And the vagrant sheds that were set up in Liverpool was depicted by the Pearl authorities as a resource particularly exploited by the Irish migrants. As we know, after the famine period, Irish migrants tended to travel less in family groups and Irish patients, particularly men, were more likely to be single. So in 1866, 50% of the Irish male admissions were single compared to 40% of the non-Irish patients. And many of their admission certificates noted nearest relative unknown, no friends, or that the closest relatives were living in Ireland. And Irish patients were also liable to be found wandering and their previous abode not known. So this is repeated throughout these admission papers. So if you look at one year, just for an example, in 1873, just under 50% of Irish patients are described in these terms. So the emphasis is very much on isolation. And this relative isolation was exasperated, according to contemporary observers, by their slowness to adapt to English ways of life and to enter primary relationships with native town dwellers. 
Um, by the late 19th century, men and women left Ireland in almost equal numbers to seek work as domestic uh, servants and casual labourers. And the domestic service were a especially vulnerable group, and large numbers of single Irish servants ended up in the asylum. Now, this is, of course, not unique to Irish. Um, generally, domestic servants are a vulnerable group to admission. So Mary Lennon was one such woman. She's aged 30, again a single Irish Roman Catholic, and she was brought to Rain Hill in 1875. She was reported to have been in service in Birkenhead in Seacombe. Um, only a few days pr previous to coming to Liverpool town, where she resided a week and from there ended up in the asylum. Her bodily condition was poor, she was agitated and restless, and quote, is constantly getting into corners and praying. She talked in the rambling way of being an exile of Erin and wanting freedom. And even years after the extremes of the famine, many Irish people were brought to the asylum, impoverished and exhausted. And one interesting example was Mary Stieg, who was a 28-year-old single woman, again Roman Catholic, um, and a dealer who came to Liverpool in a steamship from Warren Point in County um, Down. And on arrival, she was taken by the police to the workhouse and thence to the um, asylum. And she was admitted to Rain Hill in December 1875 in a weak physical condition and was reported to be bruised and thin. She claimed she had dealt in eggs and butter and had sailed between Warren Point and Liverpool twice a week. Mary also explained to the asylum staff that she had married for six years to a German shoemaker and during this period had borne six children, including two miscarriages. She experienced delusions that she was being poisoned and that she had been on the cross, showing a mark on her foot where the nail had been driven in. Eight months later, she was reported it to be improved and to be working well in the laundry. And eventually she was discharged or covered in August 1876. So the complex and often prolonged wanderings of Irish patients took a heavy toll on their physical as well as their mental health. And Irish patients were often described to be more shattered and in more bodily, poorer bodily health than their counterparts. Individual patients were more likely to be described in case notes as thin, weak, physically deteriorated, the consequences of poverty, unemployment, poor living conditions and disease. Um, Mary Birmingham, an elderly single woman who was admitted to Rain Hill in March 1869, rambling and incoherent, nervous and suspicious that some injury was to be done to her, was very much a typical example. She refused to eat and spent hours on her knee praying. A poor, wretched, this is how she's described, a poor, wretched-looking old woman, evidently half-starved. She seems to have borne the brunt of every weakness. This old woman has been a hawker and travelled all over the country, getting very little food, seldom more than one meal a day, and that consisting of perhaps tea and bread. She says she's, been never, she's never taken any stimulating drinks and it was established that she'd been in Rainhill for, um, for six months. And her case gives an indication of the mixture of responses. I mean, that's quite a sympathetic um, response to her um, situation. The Purlan Asylum Superintorities expressed particular frustration about Irish migrants who were returned from America and elsewhere to Lancashire as their point of departure, rather than back to Ireland as their point of birth. Those, these numbers were, these were small in number, 
In terms of the overall picture of admissions, they did sort of exemplify, sort of become sort of flashpoints of irritation. Um, an example of, of a particular instance took place in 1853, and it was recorded in the Lancaster uh, Gazette. They commented on the better part of the country if they leave Ireland, quitted for the purpose of joining friends on the American continent and of getting a living in that part of the world which they, for some reason that we don't understand, can't pick up in the land of their birth. The wanderers who infest this and other stands are inbred mendicants. This is a type of frustration that they express at the return of these um, uh, um, uh, migrants back to, to Liverpool rather than back to Ireland. One specific instance which took place um, and attracted a lot more publicity was the removal of paupers, uh, a particular incident in 1858. A report in the Daily Post described how the ship, the Resolute, had arrived from Boston with 35 persons on board, many of them lunatics, and that they were lunatic when they were shipped, so they had actually become ill in uh, Boston. They were said to have been in a great state of distress and forced to board the vessel. More were said to be on their way. And in November, the clerk of the Brown Hill uh, workhouse, which was in Liverpool, reported that during the last year, a total of 108 paupers had been returned from America, and many of these Irish. Most, indeed, were sickly and broken down, and 17 were listed as lunatics and epileptics. Many as you were, um, were subsequently returned to Ireland at the county's cost, though 15 remained in the workhouse. So again, it's this frustration that they're brought back to to Liverpool, and then Lancashire County is obliged to foot the bill of returning them to Ireland. And it was also suggested that emigrant runners in Liverpool had persuaded those without resources to make the journey, who were immediately then returned on the same ship on reaching America. So the idea that the runners encouraged people to buy the passage, they arrived in America, they weren't admitted, and they were sent right back again. Other committee members disputed this, claiming that many of those who were returned from America had actually resided there for, over, for many years, including women married to US citizens. Of the 17 insane paupers um, of the group, Rainhill took, only took in six because of its overcrowded state. And its superintendent, Dr. Rogers, condemned such practices, while also expressing concern that they were likely to continue and that Liverpool, as the chief port of American ships, would suffer the most. And such activities were no, mean, no means confined to Lancashire. For instance, in 1884, the New Zealand inspector of asylums expressed concern that asylums in home, um, sorry, that patients in home asylums are showing insane tendencies, were shipped to New Zealand to escape the burden of maintenance at home. The example for New Zealand. Uh, was, was discovered of the Mar Margaret S. of Glasgow, um, who in 1884, it was claimed that her parents took her out of an asylum at home and brought her out to New Zealand to, to basically move her on. So to conclude then, I think, yeah, <laughs> mania is one last example. Um, the Lancashire asylum system grew resolutely throughout the second half of the 19th century, causing alarm for ratepayers. This is nothing new within asylum history. Um, it caused alarm for ratepayers, for poor law officials, for lunacy commissioners, and asylum superintendents, whose institutions basically expanded hu hugely in size, 
but were still unable to cope with the sheer scale of numbers. By 1867, Lancashire's then three county asylums contained over 2,500 patients. By 1890, there were four asylums um, and the patient population had swelled to just under 6,500, while an additional 2,500 pauper lunatics were maintained in workhouses. And by the late 19th century, the number of Irish-born patients, were, patients was in decline, but they remained highly visible in asylums and much commented on by doctors in charge of them. And their numbers swelled by second generation of Irish patients who, as Dr Rogers at Rainhill stated, were Irish in everything except place of birth. They now stood, the Irish patients now stood as emblems for the massive rates of incarceration they were fixed and mobile in warehouse-like institutions as much as wandering voyagers. Also by the late 19th century, the Irish of Liverpool and Lancashire were, of course, more prosperous, more middle class and more diverse in their social and residential profile, emerging from the ranks of the unskilled labour and becoming more numerous among the artisans, shopkeepers, mer merchants and professional classes. Um, Intemperance and the violence begotten of them, which caused Irish names to figure so often in the police course, are confined to one wretched class. Yet still, quote, too often, adverse circumstance drive the great bulk of them to the hardest, the most precarious and the worst paid employment in the English labour market. So while you had this emerging middle class, there was this other group who were still uh, very present in Liverpool. Father James Nugent, a local priest and social reformer, referred to the Irish who stayed in Britain as the dregs, unfit to leave the city to seek other opportunities. And meanwhile, ideas of degeneration, which flourished during the latter quarter of the century, dovetailed with these uh, representations of Irish patients. And this, of course, manifested itself in the caricaturing of Irish people in the press, which were very angry about the cost of lunacy in, in, in Lancashire, and also, as we know, in cartoons. So a typical example would be the, the, the Irish women are very plain, ethnographically of low type, with small turn-up nose, small eyes, large jaws, and large flat cheekbones. The men were ugly as sin, and coarse as young bulls, of which their movements were mindful. On his admission, however, to Rain Hill in 1873, Patrick Gibney, a 50-year-old married labourer, uh, suffering from general paralysis of the insane, was noted to be quite demented and resembles more a monkey than a human being. While Margaret McNally, transferred from Liverpool prison to Rain Hill in August 1896, was noted to be frequently noisy and excited, but never in the least violent. Her condition is an exaggeration of the normal mental state of a good-tempered Irish blackguard. And this becomes only really that strong at the end of the 19th century. And the forced return of mad Irish migrants back to Liverpool from overseas seemed to reinforce perceptions of the Irish as a race in decline, especially prone to insanity at home and abroad. Thank you. Just so just, actually, one thing I just want to say, if, um, if uh, a paper on it is not misery enough, we actually did a play um, from this project, 
We produced in collaboration with a company, um, Talking Birds, who are a Coventry-based uh, uh, theatre company. And we basically sent them a huge amount of our, our research and source material and you know, articles as well as the case notes. And they, working very closely with a script writer, developed a, a script for a play, which was um, staged in the, over the summer, last summer, at the New Theatre in Temple Bar in Dublin in early July and in Coventry um, at the end of June. And we actually have a video clip, but I don't know if it'll work. Do it work? Shall I click it? No? Yes, no? Let me see what happens. No, that's grand. But there you have a photograph of one of the scenes um, from it, and, and likewise here. So they, they actually took, they used a lot of music in the play to try and sort of lighten the story a wee bit, um, and also, you know, took quite a, a humorous uh, approach to the, the attitudes of the uh, officials. And it was, it was very, very successful and got a lot of very good feedback um, from audiences. <coughs> Um, you know, we, there was very an open audience, and um, it was quite interesting. We had panel discussions after uh, the first night's showing in each location, and we had audiences, you know, people, psychiatrists, but also migrants, families of migrants. And it was really, really interesting to get their in, uh, feedback into uh, their experiences of migration or family experiences of migration. So, thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much, Catherine, for a fascinating talk. Um, uh, I was going to, I'm going to go around and ask, uh, hand the, the microphone out to people who want to ask questions, but I'm going to be selfish and ask one first, which is this concept of uh, mania you referred to quite a few times. And I'd just be interested to know whether you did refer to it as a, a condition they saw as being more violent, but was that a general term that's used for anything? Uh, well, it was a term that's used a lot in the period. It's not so much used for anything. I mean, it did. It, did, it was associated with very particular types of, of behaviour. You know, there was an understanding of, you know, of what it was, as it were. Um, and it was, it was very commonly used in, in diagnosis of patients. I've forgotten the figure. It's, it's usually used quite a lot in asylums. Usually, I think it's around about a quarter or maybe a bit more in most asylum populations. But the Irish seem to be... It was used to describe the Irish you know, at higher rates. Um, and mania is often associated just with a lot of sort of outbursts and strength. Um, you know, patients are often said to have unusual strength and have unusual energies. Yeah. And, this, and it's interesting it tends to be associated more often, um, possibly disproportionately, with Irish patients. Just on the second thing, the, the people that were uh, transferred straight from the ship into an asylum, is it, and kind of, what, how would how that happen? Was that just something they decided they, they should be dumped in an asylum? I thought, I, Usually they would arrive in the port and obviously they were looking for some form of accommodation and a, perhaps in some instances a parole authority would pick them up and bring them in. Sometimes a police officer would see that they were maybe behaving erratically and pick them up and bring them to the asylum. Other cases they were ended up in the workhouse because they were destitute and then they moved very quickly from the workhouse to the asylum. I mean, One of the really interesting things is the connection between the different institutions. Um, there's a huge, large proportion of them come through the prison system as well. Um, so you see short terms in the prison um, and then being moved into the asylum. And it's, it's often unclear as to whether, you know, the prison regime itself prompted the mental illness and that that's why they ended up in the asylum or if they were, you know, maybe their behaviour before, before they ended up in the prison um, was associated with some form of illness and then that was the, the, the path, as it were. 
Okay, well, I'll throw it over to anybody else. Just interesting. I was very interested in the patterns of behaviour of migrants mm -hmm. and how that's reflected when I was studying sociology in the 70s, you know, about um, West Indians and psychiatric yeah. services in London and yeah. I'm sure other migrants since. Social isolation, you know, not understanding their cultural habits and language. Mm -hmm. So um, it's very thought-provoking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very interesting because we got a lot of comments like that um, at, at the panel discussions. Because I suppose that's where we've probably encountered um, practitioners or people working in the the field the most was during those panel discussions. And of course, in Ireland at the moment, yeah, I was particularly struck by it in the Dublin uh, presentation because. Uh, the movement of people into Ireland is actually a relatively you know, new thing, certainly compared to, to uh, Britain. So it was very interesting to, to see uh, psychiatrists themselves and others uh, making those connections and seeing those connections. So yeah, it was, and, and actually individuals themselves, and now, yeah, absolutely. Hello, I'm um, very interested in your talk. Um, since we're in Edinburgh, I thought we could mention Thomas Christen, yeah. who's the superintendent of the Royal Edinburgh Science. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few things. Uh, first of all, he talked about the Celtic temperament. Yeah. Um, he felt um, uh, people, in contrast to what he called the Anglo Saxons, uh, were more prone to insanity. Uh, and he included the Scottish, the Irish, uh, the Highlanders. Uh, and he felt this when they came and say, their uh, anxiety would be more flamboyant, unstable than the stout Anglo-Saxon anxiety. He also, uh, in his book, because you mentioned uh, case portrait of somebody who was ugly, he had a condition called developmental ugliness. Yes, yeah. So um, I was trying to uh, you know, locate it in the kind of ideas of the time. Yeah. But the, the other thing, uh, although there was all these cultural ideas, uh, when I looked at the role in Versailles, uh, the people admitted they were very unwell. Yeah. GPI, which you mentioned, yeah. was a very common condition. And I'm not sure, are you arguing that people were locked up in asylums because they're Irish? I, I don't know. No, 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 no. I mean, first of all, on Thomas Clouston, um, yes, he actually, is, we, I could have given you the footnote. I mean, he's one person I mentioned how he very explicitly looks at and, and actually the, he engages in a, um, a couple of uh, papers with the um, inspectors of Irish lunacy as well and trying to explain why the rates of confinement in Ireland are so high um, so there's he engages in that debate as well so and he's one that sort of very much is at the forefront of commenting on how the um, it's not just that the Irish migrants tend to be um, committed in high numbers, but also the numbers in their own institutions. So he's, 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 very much, he's in our footnotes a lot, I'll put it that way. Um, no, it's not so much that I think we're arguing that, he's, that the Irish are committed to asylums because they're Irish. I think it's what we're trying to tease out is, I suppose, that relationship and the contemporary understanding of um, you know, the stress of migration on one hand. Um, whether, I mean, that's what I think really struck us is when they actually refer to migration as a stress um, in this very early period, um, and relates, I think, to your point. Um, and also the fact that their physical, um, um, very 
I mean, it really jumps out at you as you read the case notes when you compare your non-Irish and Irish examples. The physical conditions of the Irish seem to be so much worse and it's interesting to see how the medical superintendents are making those connections. Um, and then, of course, the fact that once they're in the asylum, they seem to get entrenched in the system. That's what's very interesting as well. They, they, come from these, or they seem to come from these worlds where they've moved around a lot at this global level. Some of them have served in armies in India, in America, uh, other places. Um, and then they end up in, this, in the asylum and they end up in there for decades. Again, it's disproportionate to the non-Irish population. Um, so, and they're more, much more likely to be moved to Whittingham Asylum um, because it's this huge, terrible, it's, it's a really huge institution. Um, they're more likely to be moved there and they're very clear, the medical superintendents are clear on why they're being moved there. It's because they don't have families to visit them. And really, the people with families to visit them should be left in, say, Liverpool and Manchester, whereas those without families should be moved to, to the, the outskirts, as it were, and into to Whittingham. So, no, it's not so much that they're being mitted because they're Irish. It's more because the conditions that their lifestyle, um, uh, that their migration have led them into, that seems to be influencing their condition, their mission rates. Uh, you mentioned epilepsy as one of the reasons that uh, someone could go being mm. incarcerated. Was there a, a link between epilepsy, or did they see epilepsy being linked to insanity at that time? And were there other uh, physical medical conditions that if someone had, they were likely to end up in an asylum? Well, yeah, I mean, epilepsy was one of those categories that was, in, you know, there were quite a large number of people suffering from epilepsy within the uh, with asylum systems generally in England, um, Ireland, um, and elsewhere. So it was seen as a sort of, particularly as a, the physical toll of epilepsy um, impacted on in a, a patient's mental or mental state, basically. So the, the decline was quite. Um, quite dramatic um, and quite sad actually to read in the case notes. They're, they're quite sad reports when you, you read through them. Um, what's interesting about epilepsy is they don't particularly link epilepsy um, or indeed idiocy, you know, the category of idiocy, uh, that diagnostic category that's used in asylum records. They don't actually link that particularly strongly with Irish people. Um, that's not disproportionate. Um, so that's in keeping with other um, groups. And you had another part of your question, sorry? It was just whether other physical medical conditions that were mentioned. Well, I suppose the biggest one would be GPI, general paralysis of the same, which of course subsequently is understood as a as a physical um, disorder. You know, syphilis being the, the cause. That seems to be the, that's the main one that, that jumps out. But the other physical, I suppose, uh, cause would be just poverty. Um, that impact of uh, malnutrition is uh, commented on among them as well. So yeah, they do have this physical. Um, Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, thank you, Catherine, for an excellent paper. And one thing that struck me when listening to your talk was that there is a parallel, and that is with uh, people being incarcerated in prisons, Irish people being incarcerated in prisons in Britain in the 19th century. When Fitzpatrick looked at all this and conducted a, a very detailed statistical analysis, what he found was contrary to the stereotype mm. that the Irish weren't any more prone to criminality, yeah. but they were from 
social groups which have high rates of criminal activity. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to the, the sort of pen portraits that you, you presented, it struck me one thing that all these people have in common is they're essentially powerless. Mm. Um, and that perhaps the reason why many of them ended up in some form of an asylum uh, is that they were unable to resist pressures um, from society and elsewhere. But in the sense that it solves a lot of social problems for the authorities in Britain and indeed the authorities in, in Ireland as well. Mm. At the end, I wasn't really too sure whether you were giving support to the argument that migration has serious psychological effects which can be then you know, traced through into uh, people ending up in institutions or was it, you know, just a sort of, you know, a mix of factors? Or I mean, there is, there's, as you know, there's, there was work that was done uh, at an MRC centre in uh, Glasgow mm. during yep. the 1970s and 1980s. Where, yep. they, I mean, the argument that they made mm. was that Irish-born and Irish just ethnic descent people have higher rates of like, uh, institutional care because of, of the yeah. effect of. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I mean, that, and that has carried on beyond the 1970s into more recent studies, which you know continue to say that they use um, psychiatric services in greater um, numbers than than other groups. I think what our our work shows, I mean, that I was well, that was one disappointment. Where we got terribly excited by our source material on one hand. One of our disappointments was that we couldn't divide the grouping between those who were very you know short term uh, or those who just arrived quite soon and were moved, sorry, those who had, who had moved into asylum quite quickly and those who'd remain, who had been in Liverpool, say, for 10 years. Had we been able to sort of differentiate out those two different groups, I think we would have been able to come back with a more robust response um, about that question of whether it's the process of migration or whether it's um, the, you know, being a migrant in a different cultural environment, which is the is the most important factor, but in many ways I'm not quite sure, you know, does it matter that we need to know, which is for this study anyway, which is the most important factor. I think it's a blend, basically. And there is such an emphasis placed on the conditions of um, passage um, and the conditions of the individuals on departure and also the conditions that they, um, they live in if they are you know, settled in the area or more likely moving around. So I think it's, it is a blend, I think, it, for, certainly from this um, study, how that would factor nowadays, you know, we, um, I mean, obviously we've read up a more contemporary material, um, but that even that's debated, highly debated from what um, we can see at this stage. And I agree with you, I think it's more about a social uh, grouping that is, I mean, quite interesting from this project, we've actually been prompted to now start looking at the prisons and lo looking at prisons as sites of um, potential health and health care, but more importantly lo looking at the mentally and ill the prison system and to seeing to what extent prisons are being, you know, the boundaries between the two is actually much more blurred of people moving in and out of between the two systems um, and also this idea of the prisons as being a cause of mental illness as much as individuals ending up in the prisons because they are behaving in certain ways. But yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not always convinced it's the authorities that are the groups that are placing people in these institutions. Um, 
my own work in Ireland suggests, you know, the authorities are actually not that centrally. They're involved as in the mechanics of the process, but actually it's family, it's local communities that are much more central. So I'm always a bit wary of going for the, you know, the, the big policeman sort of picking people up off the street with the nets and popping them in. Having said that, we do see quite a large number of people being, um, you know, because we have those, those um, Lancashire case notes, those county council, council case notes, or sorry, notebooks, um, there are quite a large number who are being brought into either the workhouse or the asylum by a police, uh, police map. So, yeah, but I think you're right. I think it's more about the family and the social grouping that we're looking at. Probably time for a couple more questions. I just wanted to ask about uh, therapeutics, and uh, in particular, given the large numbers of Irish uh, admissions that were associated with uh, malnutrition or, or weakness or physical condition, uh, I just wondered if uh, Clustonian uh, emphasis on, on feeding and yep. building people yep. up, and, and whether Absolutely. that was uh, whether that was observed. There. And also, if it, if it was successful, if, you, yeah. if there were very high discharge Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge focus in the asylum. I mean, first of all, they become, they all become very big institutions. But there's a huge focus on feeding these patients up. On, um, you know, and again, it becomes a complaint as well because they complain that there are heavy draw on resources because they require more nursing, better quality food. Um, so there is this huge, huge focus on looking after their physical well-being. Um, to what extent it works, I don't, I couldn't really, I mean, you do see, they do track, as you, as you know, the casebooks, um, improvement, and you can see people, their physical state uh, being improved, and it's been reported over and over again that their physical well-being is improved. But of course, then you have their mental well-being isn't improved, or, you know, they only get so far and then they just end up, which is often, as you know, called, um, are described as having dementia. Um, in the institution. And of course in this period dementia is not necessarily associated with old age as just become, you know, as, but more with individuals who are embedded within an institution. So you know you have patients in their 30s and 40s being described as having dementia because they're just in there for so long. So yes, the, the regime of care is very much that feeding up and all, the, all those type of um, uh, things, but and nothing much more than that. One more question, everybody. Two, three, four, five. Um, I was just wondering um, if the case notes and things like that actually actually take into account what some of these Irish people might have seen, especially the famine Irish. They've been involved in evictions or things like that. Um, it's remarkable how silent they are on um, the famine. Um, they don't really talk too much about the, you know, in the, in the case notes, they don't really talk a huge amount about the, the, um, the famine itself and the impact of the famine. You see the odd reference in the Lunacy Commissioner's reports, um, but that tends to be slightly more after the fact. So about a decade after the fact, they, they start commenting on the potential impact of the famine. Um, I mean, I know there were some theories at the time that emerged, you know, immediately after um, about the, the impact of the famine on mental health. But we, again, expected to see it in the case notes. And actually, it was, it was very seldom appeared. One or two. I'm not saying it, it's not there. 
but it's, it's not very common. Um, and when they talk about evictions or landlords or anything like that, again, it tends to be um, the poor law uh, commissioners or the lunacy commissioners commenting on, you know, this is an attempt to try and relieve themselves. The Irish landlords are trying to relieve themselves of the burden of looking after their own poor by shipping them over to us. So you don't see a huge amount um, of that in the, in the actual case notes and absorbed, or commented on by the medical um, superintendents. Okay, well, look, um that was a fascinating trip through, you know, through sort of cultural changes and population changes, taking on a perspective that I didn't know very much about. So I'd just like to um, thank you once again, Catherine, for uh, giving us your time for the Edinburgh History of Medicine Group. And um, I think we all should uh, show our appreciation for uh, Catherine's efforts today. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.